Case is submitted. We'll hear argument next, number 035554, uh, Larry D. Hebel versus the 6th Judicial District Court of Nevada. Mr. Dolan, am I pronouncing your client's name correctly? Uh, Your Honor, it's Heibel. Heibel, very well. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. I am here today to respectfully ask this Honorable Court to find that the search and seizure of my client was illegal and unreasonable and in the process to reverse my client's conviction. Petitioner Heibel was arrested and convicted of a crime simply because he did not identify himself or provide identity. Could the officer have just said, show me your driver's license? We don't believe so, Your Honor. Why? Uh, this was not a traffic stop. This was a, uh, an interaction between a pedestrian and a law enforcement officer, uh, wherein the officer — But there was evidence. Uh, was it not clear that he had been driving and he got out of his vehicle at the time — the officer saw him, he was out? Uh, no, Your Honor. There was never a finding of fact on that issue. In fact, the, uh, the issue before the trier of fact in the Justice of the Peace uh, uh, Court there in Winnemucca was whether or not the, char- the charge of resisting and delaying the officer occurred. Well, what was the factual situation? He, he was certainly right next to a truck, wasn't he? Yes. When Deputy Dove arrived at the scene, um, uh, uh, Mr. Heibel was standing at the passenger side of the car. His daughter was in the cab of the truck uh, by the, uh, the steering wheel. And when Deputy Dove arrived on the scene, he began uh, the police-citizen encounter with Mr. Heibel. They approached each other. Um, Deputy Dove uh, uh, said, I heard that there was some kind of a fight. Uh, Mr. Heibel said, I don't know anything about that. Deputy Dove then proceeded to ask approximately 11 times for Mr. Heibel to provide identification. Let me see ID. Let me see ID. But you don't think he could have asked for his driver's license? No, Your Honor. I don't believe that there was any reasonable basis for that question at that time. Well, because the officer had been told that in a truck, in that truck, somebody was hitting somebody. Well, we believe that the deputy certainly had the right to ask for identity, and and we think equally so Mr. Heibel was free not to respond. There was I say, no- what, what, what do you think the purpose of our, of, our Terry, uh, of our Terry decision is? I mean, it says that when an officer sees uh, somebody in su- suspicious circumstances, he can stop that person and inquire to satisfy himself that uh, nothing uh, nothing underhanded is going on. Now, what, what kind of questions can he ask that, that must be answered? Any at all? The qu- he, he can't even ask the name, you said. Well, you're can he ask, what, you, what are you doing here? He sees somebody hanging around a jewelry store at 2 a.m., and, and, and so he, <clears throat> uh, he conducts a Terry stop. What, what can he ask the fellow? What are you doing here? I mean, if he can't give his name, surely he doesn't have to tell the officer what he's doing here. Well, we, we certainly believe that under the Fifth Amendment, a person has no obligation to respond to, to that officer. The, the citizen never knows whether or not the encounter is a consensual encounter, where he certainly has no obligation to speak or do anything. He, In fact, he can freely terminate the encounter at any time. Now, there is, uh, under Your Honor's question, a Terry stop. Certainly the citizen doesn't know that. The officer does, presumably. And if that Terry stop was to evolve into a probable cause circumstance. No, it hasn't. It hasn't evolved. It was just a Terry stop. Just a Terry stop. You say. Uh, the officer is allowed to make. Uh, he's allowed re- to ask questions, but he shouldn't expect answers. 
We certainly don't believe that the government can criminalize the non-response, which the statute in this case does, Your Honor. Well, can, can I, in a Terry stop, uh, when the officer is attempting to make a pat down, can the uh, person resist it? Uh, not lawfully. I believe that the court certainly allows, if there is uh, independent basis to conclude that the off- that the subject uh, is armed, the officer is lawful in using force to apply for a pat-down search. And if a person resisted that, then that would be a basis for a criminal prosecution. You take the position, uh, as I understand your brief, um, that the purposes of criminal investigation uh, simply do not extend to asking for the names of witnesses, as, as I understand you. Suppose there's a, a, a bank robbery and, and there's a fatal shooting and the robbers run out of the bank. The police come a few minutes later. Can they ask, uh, uh, can they require the witnesses to give their names? Can there, could there be a state statute properly drawn in that circumstance which require the witnesses to give their names? We don't believe so, Your Honor. We, we believe that the relation to the state that free citizens have uh, prevent the state from imposing obligations, affirmative obligations, to terminate uh, the and, and citizen police encounter. Is, your, is your, your negative answer to my question premised on the Fifth Amendment or some privacy concept? Y- y- um, the, the, yes, Your Honor. The, the privacy concept that the Fourth Amendment addresses certainly allows a person to be free from an illegal search. We believe that when the government is attempting to extract data from a person without probable cause, it is improper. But identity is somehow different. It's kind of a neutral fact. Uh, Under your view, it wouldn't be possible to have some national identification card requirement then. Your Honor, the, uh, the name is not neutral, certainly in this domestic battery Terry stop because well, the name I itself. Think one's one's uh, name probably is just a neutral fact. It's not incriminating one way or the other. Uh, Your Honor, there are numerous instances where one's name is uh, not a neutral fact. In the facts of this case, the underlying purpose of the criminal investigation was to determine if a domestic battery had occurred. But there it, would be no problem in in checking the license on the vehicle and then seeing and then the officer could ask are you whoever is the owner of the car yes your honor certainly there are numerous investigative tools available to the police including running the license plate in fact deputy he does that he does that and the person can you can ask you can ask if he's the owner of the car the registered owner of the car but you can't ask him his name well, uh, we certainly believe that had that been the facts in the case and Mr. Heibel chose not to respond, there would not be a basis that's proper under the law for a criminal prosecution in that regard, Your Honor. No, but I thought — no, you, you were going to say something. That's all right. Go ahead. I, I, I thought your position was <coughs> that if it had been sufficiently apparent that Mr. Heibel was associated with the truck, that he owned it, had been driving it or something like that, that under those circumstances, the, 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 the police could have, uh, could have exercised the state's regulatory power over motor vehicles and said, show me your driver's license or show me your registration. Is that correct? We believe that that, that is the law, Your Honor. All right. That, and and you're saying the reason they couldn't do any of those things here in the sense of, the, of demanding compliance is that there wasn't a sufficient connection shown between the, the, the Mr. Heibel and the truck. Is that what it boils down to? Nor was it relevant at trial, Your Honor. Oh, okay. But, I mean, we're talking about the scene. And at the scene, you're saying there just wasn't a predicate for forcing him to answer those questions. That no. is correct, Your Honor. And it was, it was not a fact that was deemed relevant by the state at the since, time or the defense. Right. And since there was not, I take it your general position is that they can ask him anything he does not have to say anything in response to any question they ask. That Period. is true. Isn't that it? Yes, Your Honor. And that is sort of assumes that there's no responsibility on the part of citizens. I mean, uh, but we impose all sorts of responsibilities on citizens in connection with uh, the, de- the determination of criminal activity. I mean, harboring a felon is, is a crime. 
it's it's unlawful to give a false response to uh, to inquiry by a federal investigative officer. Why isn't it a perfectly reasonable responsibility of a citizen when he's a witness to the to a crime to have to give his name so that he may call be called upon to testify? Why isn't that a minimal a minimal citizen's responsibility? And likewise, in these circumstances, I cannot imagine that any responsible citizen would have would have objected to giving the name. And if if I if one feels that way about it, why is it a violation of the Constitution to to have citizens do what every responsible citizen, it seems to me, would do? Your Honor, the imposition of an affirmative duty to avoid criminal sanction when you are otherwise innocent of any crime is an improper tipping of balance in favor of the State at the expense of some very In favor of the State. What's your best case for that proposition? Your Honor, uh, there are numerous anonymous activities that this Court finds to be important to the maintenance of a free society engaging NAACP versus Alabama, but that was a suspect class, membership list. What, what else do you have? Your Honor, also uh, the Watchtower line of cases, religious solicitation, religious uh, door-to-door activity. That was a burden on speech. That is correct, Your Honor. Um, I'm addressing circumstances where a citizen also is left at the mercy of the discretion of an officer. No citizen can safely have a voluntary interaction with an officer without risking arrest because there is no obligation in the law for the officer to say, as a result of you telling me that you have a red car, I now determine that reasonable suspicion exists. What about giving this man who appeared to be under the influence of alcohol a breathalyzer test? Nothing different. It's just there's a basis for a Terry stop. He's now out of the car. The officer thinks Mr. Heibel could be a menace on the road and so says, I'm giving you a breathalyzer test. Could he say, could he resist that? We, we don't believe that there was reasonable suspicion at all that he was the operator of the car and there would have been no lawful basis for the... Well, they, they, there's a passenger sitting on the passenger seat and he's gotten out and he's on the driver's side, right? No, Your Honor. Uh, in fact, Mr. Heibel was standing at the passenger side door and the, and the and there was somebody in that seat. No, Your Honor. The, where, where was the daughter? The daughter was when the officer arrived behind the wheel. She eventually slid over to the passenger side when she was um, towards the end of the encounter. She exited and then was thrown to the ground and arrested. Um, but uh, could could she have been asked the name? Could we, she? Asked her father's name. Certainly, I believe available to Deputy Dove at the time was to do what he was there to do, and that was to investigate to see if a domestic battery had occurred. Um, I don't believe the issue before the court is whether or not Deputy Dove uh, engaged in the best or worst police activity. I believe the issue before this court, and with respect to um, Justice Kennedy's question, homeless people there are, do not have the appropriate residences, permanent residencies, and accordingly would be yeah, unable have, to provide have identification. Have our Terry uh, cases suggested that the whole point of a stop and a search based on reasonable suspicion is to make identification? No, Your Honor. No? In fact, no, Your Honor. I believe that certainly the concurring opinion of Justice White and Terry itself clearly stated that he was of the opinion that a person is not obliged to respond well, to Well, that was the- a concurring opinion. Do you think that a person stopped on reasonable suspicion can be compelled to give a fingerprint? That is a qualitatively different invasion of one's privacy, but unless... Yes or no? Well, as a general rule, no. There may be some exceptions. Uh, This Court has addressed the possible exceptions, like being the officer knows that a murder-rape has occurred, fingerprints, bloody fingerprints were found at the scene. There was independent facts to tie the person to that scene, and the purpose of, of a fingerprint would be to confirm or dispel that officer's specific concern about the possible criminality of that one person, and the court has indicated that that may be appropriate. But that's a very that was limited to, to those facts. This was a misdemeanor. So the, the officer who approaches somebody in a perfectly valid Terry stop, a really suspicious-looking character, he puts several questions to him, and the guy says, "I'm, I'm, you know, I ain't talking." 
the officer just has to turn on his heel and leave this suspicious character to go about his suspicious business. Uh, Your Honor, he can't. Uh, he can't say, "Come along with me." You know, we'll find out who you are and why you're here. He can't do that. We believe the law under uh, Wardlow, Your Honor, requires that unless the police officer is able to escalate his basis of knowledge to probable cause after a reasonable period of time of inquiry. Why isn't the refusal? Maybe you and I differ on on, on what the uh, the course of a responsible citizen is. I would think the course of a responsible citizen would be to answer the question what you're doing here and what your name is. And if he doesn't answer that, I would would say that that may, may cause the situation to rise to the level of probable cause. We, we he's hanging around a jewelry store. It's late at night. He won't say who he is. He wouldn't say, won't say what he's doing there. I would I would drag him in. Well, the, the person could be purchasing jewelry for his paramour, and, and, and he does not want his wife to know. Certainly. It's possible, but unlikely. <laughs> there suppose suppose, suppose there is probable cause to arrest, and an arrest is made. Uh, could a state then require that uh, the person answer as to his identity just so that the officer can confirm that he's got the right person? Uh, again, I believe even in a uh, post-probable cause booking procedure, a person has the right to remain silent. If they view from their perspective, and I believe this is where the test is, Rhode Island v. Innes would, 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 would suggest uh, is that. Is that Fifth Amendment privilege that you're – Yes, indicating here? Yes, Your Honor. Because one's well, name it, — It seems to me that that is such a, um, a minor detail in light of what the police can get in any event with fingerprints and so forth, uh, that the Fifth Amendment should just say that that's not testimonial. Well, it, the Fifth you're, you're not probing the perception, the memory, the cognition of the witness. You're just determining an extrinsic fact. Um, Your Honor, the — the name is, in fact, testimonial because it, it is an assertion of fact, and one can lie about one's name, and accordingly, I think, believe the test of what's testimonial or not is met. It's also incriminating because if an officer determines that probable cause exists, that a domestic battery has occurred, that officer must arrest that person. May I ask you this question that really follows up on Justice Scalia's question? Would you also argue that the refusal to give the name could not be counted as an additional fact to establish probable cause? Yes, Justice Stevens. We believe that asserting so you're not just co- relying on the fact that the refusal <coughs> is itself a crime in this case. That, that, I, you I go know, beyond well, that and say you well, could not even take it into account for determining whether there's enough evidence to the, take him to the state. The exercise of a constitutional right can never increase one's level of yeah, but we suppose what, what, what about — uh, what about, say, uh, the murder scene ex- exception we talked about in that Arizona case, where uh, an officer hears the shot fired, comes into the house. There are eight or nine people in the house. Obviously, there's a dead body in the middle of the floor. Can he ask ev- everybody else for their names? Well, well I, we certainly believe the officer can ask. And are they obligated to respond? Uh, I don't believe so, Your Honor. And I believe that the imposition of a criminal sanction for silence is... Well, how, are you ever, how are you going to ever solve a murder case if that's the law? Well, uh, after post-probable cause, the law is a person is warned. They are informed of their right to remain silent. They are also informed of other constitutional rights. No, no, no. The Chief Justice's uh, hypothetical, like my bank hypothetical, is that we're just talking about witnesses now. Well, I, I don't. I certainly think that the state's case about the lawfulness of an arrest and a conviction. Is, is weaker uh, for seizing a witness who exercises their right but to remain silent. But there are situations silent. where the state can, that we, well, Byers is one where we've already said a name can be requested. People are required when there's a registration for the draft to give their names, which, and that can't be made into a consensual situation in exchange for some benefit. So we've treated names, the question of name, Differently, and there are many situations in which you are required to give the name. Um, well, Your Honor, as regards the Byers case, that statute spoke of a regulatory scheme in which the the identity which was required to be given was not to a member of law enforcement; it was to the owner of a vehicle. The Nevada statute in question specifically contemplates that the dialogue occurs within a criminal investigation in a Terry stop 
which was different from buyers, certainly, and also the intent of the statute in buyers was just to ensure that civil liabilities would be satisfied. Well, in terms of the state's need to know this information, how do you distinguish it from requiring people to register, give their name for the draft? In, in this case, Your Honor, the, the name is testimonial and incriminating because of the dynamic of the Nevada statute. You should just plead the Fifth Amendment, say, I, I refuse to answer on the ground that it might incriminate me. That, that, was, that, was that what was done? I didn't realize you're, you're making a, a Fifth Amendment incrimination claim. Is that? Yeah, we are, Your is Honor. Is that part of your? I, I go back for a second. Yes, Your Honor, we are. So that, that assumes that he was guilty, and, and, and had he not been, had he not been uh, guilty of the beating, then, he, then, then you would acknowledge that he would have had to answer. Uh, it's only the person who's guilty of the beating who would have a right not to answer. One of the interests that the Fifth Amendment is designed to protect is to protect people who place themse- find themselves in ambiguous circumstances where no. their you silence think- or their admission could Please answer the, the question yes or no. Are you saying that only the, the person who had been beating the woman in the truck and therefore whose disclosure of his name would incriminate him, only that person has the right not to answer? Or are you saying anybody who was asked uh, had indeed, the right not indeed to everyone who was asked. Under the Fifth so you're Amendment? not pleading the Fifth Amendment then. I, that's, I, well, that's what I thought you were arguing, and that has nothing to do with the Fifth Amendment. Well, the, 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 from the perspective of uh, Petitioner Heibel, when Deputy Dove said to him, I, I hear that there was a fight here, and then Deputy Dove started making inquiry of him, I think it was reasonable for uh, Petitioner Heibel to realize that at this time, he was facing the cruel trilemma, which this court speaks of. Um, uh, and, uh, in fact, had Okay, he- but if, if, if at that point I had walked down the street and the cop had turned to me and said, who are you, I wouldn't have had a Fifth Amendment right to refuse, would I? If there was an imp- imposition of criminal sanction for the failure to respond... No, 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 no. I mean, you're, you're putting the cart before the horse... Uh, so far as the Fifth Amendment is concerned, whether the cop asked me, whether there's a statute that says you, you ought to give your name to the police, would I have had a Fifth Amendment right to refuse? If it's not the Fifth Amendment right to refuse, it's your right to be let alone, All right. which is there might based be a upon Amendment other constitutional right. principles. The only thing, Justice Clear, I'm trying to get at is we thought you were saying at one point that everyone has a Fifth Amendment right to refuse to identify himself under all circumstances. And that, that, is that your position? Uh, Your Honor, the question is only affirmative as regards the Fifth Amendment if the State was to criminalize your silence in respect to that question. Did the Supreme Court of Nevada pass, did you raise a Fifth Amendment question in the, in the Supreme Court of Nevada? We, We did, Your Honor. And did the Court pass on it? Uh, the Court, uh, rejected the, uh, motion for rehearing on that issue, Your Honor. Had you, uh, had you raised it before the motion for rehearing? Yes, Your Honor, it was raised at the trial level through the citation uh, at the trial. I was the trial attorney to Berkover v. McCarty. Uh, we, I appealed to the Justice, uh, excuse me, I appealed to the Sixth Judicial District Court where both uh, the State and the defendant uh, specifically briefed the Fifth Amendment issues and argued the Fifth Amendment issues. Um, but but the, your answer that... Uh, if, if the law requires that you give your name, uh, then, then that makes everybody have a Fifth Amendment privilege. It's just, it's just not right. That's just circular. I, I would agree that there may, that there likely is no Fifth Amendment privilege for witnesses. Or I would, I would state that. You might not agree. As to people that are suspect of a crime, even if they're innocent, uh, if you're, if you're right that the name is protected, then I think the privilege, the privilege applies. Uh, because even if they're innocent, it might be a, link in the chain of evidence necessary to convict, that, that's, that's the test. Uh, but the question, it, it, it seems to me, is whether a name itself, a name itself is, is, uh, has such intrinsic testimonial consequences as opposed to neutral regulatory consequences that it should be within the Fifth Amendment. That's, it seems to me, the issue. Yes, Your Honor. I, I believe that's where the Court will, will turn on that question. But also with respect to the Fourth Amendment inquiry, a name is such that a person has a legitimate expectation in the privacy in that name 
Otherwise, the government certainly then could require name tags and perhaps color codes. But the question whether or not is that privacy is diminished when they're witnesses to, to a crime, when they're present at a crime scene. And that's certainly much different from saying that all citizens have to give their name any time a police officer asks them for any reason. That's a completely different case. Yes, Your Honor. I'm not, I'm not even sure that the driver of the truck would have a Fifth Amendment right. I don't know how your name incriminates you. Your name may help the, to catch you. But I don't know that that incriminates you. By giving you your, by giving him your name, you are, what, proving that you did something wrong? I, I, I don't see how it incriminates you. Uh, if, if, if at a traffic stop, uh, a request for a name is made by an officer to the person that the officer knows was driving the vehicle, I believe the implied consent rule would, would allow for, uh, the uh, properly imposed government sanction in that the Supreme Court of Nevada, in its concluding sentence, or the majority, says it follows that NRS such and such is good law consistent with the Fourth Amendment. And I don't see in the majority opinion any reference to the Fifth Amendment. Now, you say you raised it on rehearing? Yes, Your Honor. And the, the order of the Supreme Court of Nevada is simply the or, uh, petition for rehearing is denied. The so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure at all you raised it sufficiently before the Supreme Court. Uh, Your Honor, the issue was also briefed in the opening brief before the Nevada Supreme Court. The, uh, the Nevada Supreme Court just chose not to address it in you, their opinion. You did raise it then in your briefs? Yes, Your Honor, it did. Uh, Your Honor, I'd like to reserve uh, the remainder of my time. Very well, Mr. Dolan. Mr. Hafen, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. There are three reasons why compelling a lawfully detained person to identify himself is reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. It is a minimal intrusion, it advances officers' safety, and it promotes effective law enforcement in the prevention and detection of crime. Furthermore, it does not violate the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination, because identifying yourself is a neutral act. Now, that that goes beyond fire. My, my, um the hard part of this case for me is that Byers, which is, seems to me a much easier case, was so difficult for the court. You had a fragmented court. You didn't have an opinion for the majority of the court. And this, it does seem to me, goes one step beyond Byers uh, with reference to the Fifth Amendment. Well, in regard and, to — And Byers didn't take the position that you just take, that it's, that it's not testimonial. It seems to me that's a plausible enough argument, but I, I can't get that out of Byers. Well, Your Honor, in regard to Byers, um, it was a plurality opinion, but there was also a strong concurrence by Justice Harlan. And in that particular case, they talk about stating a name and address as being a neutral act. And in the same context, they talk about it in regard to a testimonial situation. They talk about it's a testimonial situation uh, or a non-testimonial situation when a person is stopped, um, the mere stopping of the car, but in the same context, they also say stating your name and your address is a neutral act. Well, I'll look at it again, but it seems to me even the Harlan opinion was in the context of what we might call the regulatory zone of, of, of automobile, automobile regulation and control. They do talk about that, Your Honor, but in the same context, they also describe it or they, they address it in the criminal context. The plurality opinion addresses it in the criminal context, and Justice Harlan also addresses it in the plurality context. Er, that noting a name, uh, notes that a name, quote, identifies but does not by itself implicate anyone in criminal conduct. That's correct. It's the same. Uh, that's correct, Your Honor. That, that goes to the incriminating part of it. But when they talk about the neutral act, we're interpreting that to go to the testimonial part of it. And this Court traditionally treats uh, names differently. Uh, the name and address. What else would be under your neutral category? Could telephone number, email address? How much fits in the neutral category that citizens can be required to answer? Your Honor, the statute in Nevada doesn't go that far. It simply says compelling identify, uh, the, the identification or to identify oneself. So under the Nevada statute, those type of uh, identifiers. But I'm asking you what fits what fits within this neutral. You say, you say that there are certain things you can ask a person that they can be required to respond to because they're not incriminating and they're not a violation of privacy. They're new, just neutral. So I'm just trying to get a handle on 
if we say name is neutral, what else are we implicating? You could certainly make the argument that those other uh, things that you suggested, Your Honor, are neutral. However, going back to the Fourth Amendment, they really don't serve the purpose of officer safety. It's the name that you need so that you can discover who this person is, what their background is. I don't follow that, really, because I can understand that the Terry stop, you have to pat down immediately because the officer is at risk that the person will be armed. But by the time they do the computer check, the, the harm, I mean, that doesn't arrest the situation, doesn't protect. How is the officer protected in that interval between when the person says, I won't give you my name? I mean, had to, it has to take some time to do a check, doesn't it? Well, Your Honor, going outside the record, uh, based on my experience as a prosecutor, that information can be received in just a, a matter of minutes. And so while the officer is waiting for that information, he can certainly take the posture of protecting himself. However, after receiving that information and obtaining the criminal history on this person, perhaps he has a, a history of battery on police officers, he can then escalate the protection, either calls for backup or perhaps uh, uh, unholsters his, uh, his revolver. He has a number of things that he can do after he gets that information. And so it is critical. Does that information convert reasonable suspicion into probable cause? Well, suppose he finds he's a real bad guy. Does it now become probable cause? That certainly adds into the equation, Your Honor, but that in and of itself wouldn't convert uh, into probable cause. The officer would have to look at the totality of the circumstances and uh, on review well, of The totality of the circumstances are, in, at the beginning, he has reasonable suspicion but not probable cause. The one thing he learns in addition to that is, this is a bad guy. Is it now probable cause? Well, again, I, I don't believe so because there would be other factors uh, that would, would have to be taken into consideration. But that, I've already given you all the factors. What other factors are there? The total of the factors that exist are there's only reasonable suspicion. We add one more fact. He's a bad guy. Does that make it probable cause? No. Well, it why might. Not? If, why not? If, if he's a bad guy with a particular with a, with a particular pattern, it was, it was a jewelry store and he fit all, and he's a bad guy because he robbed a lot of jewelry stores under these same Circumstances. I mean, you could play with hypotheticals, it seems to me. He has robbed this same jewelry store ten previous times. <laughs> don't, you, don't you think that would elevate it to probable cause? But the likelihood, of, yes. the likelihood of getting that precise information is quite remote, I think, in most of these cases. That's, that's correct. Uh, all right. I, I, what about Berkmer? Uh, excuse me? I, mean, I, I read the, the, the brief here. It, Case called Berkmer versus McCarty, referred to on page 13. There must be some obvious answer I'm missing. And they're talking about a Terry stop, and they say the, the court says this. You can ask him questions, but the detainee is not obliged to respond. And there's a bunch of others. So he's not obliged to respond. He's not obliged to respond. Now, what do we do about that case? Well, Your Honor, two responses. First of all, uh, I believe that reference in Berkmer is, is dicta by the court. The real holding in Berkmer was a Miranda issue. Second, uh, this court has never specifically addressed this question. All right, so what you're saying is, but uh, th- there is a lot. You know, they have a, like two pages here of different judges, Harlan, White, Berkmer, Davis, and each time the court said, but they're not obliged to respond. Now, now I, what I thought, I guess I'm approaching this case quite differently, but I thought we're not talking about national ID cards. What we're talking about are Terry stops. And a Terry stop is a derogation from the ordinary situation where you can walk wrong, do what you want. So if we're derogating from the person's ordinary freedom, what the court did in carving out exception was to create a condition. You can ask, but he doesn't have to answer. Now, the virtue of that, it's simple. Anyone can understand it. And it doesn't get us into all these problems that were raised previously, whether those problems are right, wrong, or indifferent. So if I read three Supreme Court cases and it all says that, I think maybe there's some burden in saying on your part why we shouldn't just follow what it says. Well, in in subsequent opinions that were cited by the petitioner, they discuss uh, uh, the either a dissent or a concurring, and in those particular uh, uh, references, the justice does say unsolved crimes, questions to unsolved crimes, or as justice. Why said, complicate the matter? That is, you've already said 
a name doesn't normally incriminate you, but it could. Suppose his name is Killer McGee. I don't know. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> and then I guess you could have other questions, you know, that don't normally incriminate you. Are you hungry? Uh, would you like to sit down? Uh, but so, so, so why get into this complicated thing? of saying whether a question normally isn't or normally is or sometimes or sometimes, why don't we just follow what the Court said? Because, again, Your Honor, I don't believe in this particular issue where it's a stop-and-identify statute mm-hmm. that the Court has specifically addressed that. And it's what a, your it's answer is because answer the Court said it in dictum, right? That, that, that's correct. What case are you referring to when you said it in dictum? Uh, in Berkmer v. McCarty. Um, but I, even there, we did not say it was a Fifth Amendment violation, right. a Fifth Amendment privilege. And that's what you're, you're here to argue. You're here to say that this is just not covered by the Fifth Amendment. It, it is not testimonial. It's a neutral fact. I, I agree with you about that. I'm talking about a Terry stop. And I'm simply — Which is a Fourth Amendment issue. Right. We have right. both issues right. here, do right. we not? Fourth right. Amendment and Fifth Amendment. Even if it doesn't violate the Fifth Amendment, we're still going to have to answer the Fourth Amendment question, I guess. That's correct, Your Honor. And that's when the Court would engage in a balancing test. And the Court traditionally has balanced. But we have not expressly said that Nevada can require identification or any other state. We haven't said that in a holding. That's correct. And in the language. Nor, Nor have we said otherwise. That's correct. It is correct? I'm sorry. Not in a holding. But, I mean, there are about four cases where they say, of course, and of course it's that. Now, I grant you that dicta, which, of course, this is, uh, is uh, uh, varies in its strength and so forth. But if we have a repeated series of cases that say it, doesn't there have to be a pretty good reason for departing from it? And that's what I'm listening for, a pretty good reason. Well, do all those cases that you're referring to hypothesize the existence of reasonable suspicion, or are some of them just confrontation without reasonable suspicion? Well, uh, are you in, in regard to Berkmer? Yes. In regard to Berkmer, again, that went back to a Miranda issue, whether an individual, whether an officer would have to read Miranda to a, uh, during a traffic stop. And it says uh, it's while discussing Terry stops. But they said this while discussing Terry stops. Is that so in respect to Berkmer? I'm just reading the brief. That the, the language I quoted was while discussing Terry stops. That, that's correct. The court ultimately decided that a traffic stop was akin to a Terry stop. But the court also addressed it in the situation of a Fifth Amendment issue under uh, a, a Miranda concept. Could you, could you explain to us why you think the Nevada Supreme Court didn't mention the Fifth Amendment in its opinion? Your Honor, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I am of the opinion that the, uh, the opinion simply addresses the Fourth Amendment issue. Uh, why they didn't address the, the Fifth Amendment, uh, I don't know. Those, those issues were certainly presented to that court. Because they're quite different and certainly the Fifth Amendment issue is important and perhaps even harder than the other issue. Uh, to, to some extent, Your Honor, but again, our position is that it is not testimonial and it's not incriminating. It's simply um, — but, it, but it is the, — the odd thing about this case is that the inquiry is made, and it's significant, only in the context of a criminal investigation. That's the only time the statute applies, when you've got a Terry stop. Uh, the, that, that's correct. And uh, in regard to the Fourth Amendment, again, it gets back to this balancing uh, issue. This court is going to have to balance the uh, any apparent personal security interests of Mr. Heibel against the important legitimate interests that the government has in this case. And again, it gets back to officer safety, gets back to the prevention detection of crime. And again, it's a minimal. All the arguments on the Fourth Amendment, but for me, the more difficult issue, frankly, is the Fifth Amendment. And it's really strange that they didn't they didn't discuss it at all. And it is strange that we're all concerned about identification cards, national, and all this sort of stuff. But this case is very, very narrow. It's just a case where somebody gets it out. He doesn't realize there's a statute on the books that said, uh, if you don't answer, you can go to jail or get get arrested. The funny thing about it is there are no warnings required here. Well, in this particular case, the deputy did warn him. In fact, the evidence is clear in the joint appendix on page 4 that the finding of fact by the Justice Court was that Deputy Dove did tell Mr. Heibel, if you don't give me identification, I'm going to have to arrest you. Yeah. 
And so in this particular case, he was placed on notice. The statute, but the statute didn't require that. Uh, that's, that's correct. The statute does say, shall identify yourself. Well, ignorance of the law is generally no excuse, is it? That's correct. That's correct. I, I agree that the Fifth Amendment is, is the hard, harder question in this case, especially given the convoluted opinions in buyers. Uh, it does seem to me that because the statute um, really focuses on what we might call Terry stops, that you have uh, a class of persons who are within the zone of the commission of a crime, and so the Fifth Amendment becomes it becomes slightly more of a suspect class. I don't know how that takes care of the witness hypothetical. But this person was certainly um, under suspicion um, of, of criminal activity. Well, to, to some extent, going back to uh, the videotape that, that the court has, uh, after Deputy Dove asked the qu- or, or informed Mr. Heibel, I'm here because of a fight between the two of you, he indicates, I know nothing about that. So that may very well take him somewhat out of the class of a suspect now to a potential witness. That time, Deputy Dove, based on that response, doesn't know now, well, is this the man that was reported hitting the woman in the truck, or did that person leave, and this is simply another passenger in the truck? So viewed objectively, he has every right to, to ask the question, and because it wouldn't constitute a Fifth Amendment violation in that context if Mr. Heibel truly was a witness, then he would be obligated to answer the question. What's, what's the closest case you have for us? Uh, the, the Nevada court doesn't address this issue. Uh, what's the closest case you have for us to show that this is not a Fifth Amendment violation? It would be buyers, and we rely upon buyers. And again, granted, it's a plurality decision, but with a strong concurrence by Justice Harlan. Uh, I, I thought you're, you're, you were saying earlier that your strongest reason would be that he had already, in effect, taken himself out of Fifth Amendment protection by saying, I know nothing about that. In, in, in that context, yes, because now he, according to Deputy Dove, viewed objectively, is potentially yes, uh, a witness. then your rationale for the arrest should be that you're a potential witness. And for that reason, we have a right to, to, uh, we have a right to apprehend the witness to make him testify to the crime. You don't need the, the Terry Stop rationale for that. If you think he's a witness to a crime, the Terry Stop is really irrelevant. Well, but the reasonable suspicion was formed prior to meeting with, with Mr. Heibel. So he had every... Uh, at least he had the reasonable suspicion. From the standpoint of the Fifth Amendment, what rule do you want us to adopt? When can uh, the police require persons to give their identity, in your view, under the Fifth Amendment constitutionally? Uh, during, first of all, you have to uh, make sure that uh, there's reasonable suspicion to detain the person. And at that point, then uh, when the officer asks the person for identification or what his name is, then if the person doesn't respond, then the person. What about our witness hypothetical, where uh, the chief justice's hypothetical of the of the murder with five people standing there? In my hypothetical, event, you don't you don't think the police can uh, demand um, identification at that point from witnesses? Oh, they 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 certainly could could demand at that point. What could they be criminalized if they fail to give the answer? Well, it depends if at that time there's reasonable suspicion to believe that one of those individuals may have committed a crime. Oh, so then you're abandoning the witness rationale. Well, but the statute doesn't apply to the pure witness. That's the point. This, this statute does not apply to the, the, the witness to the bank robbery who is not suspected of doing the robbery. Well, again, it's, 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 it's going to depend on the, cer- the search the situation. No, this, the hypothetical situation is purely a witness. He was standing in line at the counter. He saw somebody rob the bank, but he's not suspected at all. That all are hypothetically, you could make him give his name because you want his testimony at the trial. But that's not a, that's not the statute. Right. The statute is specifically tied into uh, reasonable suspicion and uh, uh, whether that person uh, may have committed a crime. I agree. Yeah. Well, it would be rather odd that you could ask innocent people to, to give their name and not, and not a person under a criminal suspicion. Well... Again, let me, let me back up. Do you think that maybe when he's invoking the Fifth Amendment, he has to invoke the Fifth Amendment? Do you yes. think maybe if he just can't say, I won't answer, he can be arrested if he just says, I won't answer. But if he says, I won't answer on the ground that it might tend to incriminate me, then the policeman 
would probably have probable cause, wouldn't he? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but it seems to me sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of sneaky to invoke the Fifth Amendment without invoking the Fifth Amendment. Uh, he, he didn't. Uh, that wasn't the reason he gave for not answering. I, I thought people usually invoke the Fifth Amendment. They say, I refuse to answer that question. You know, they have their lawyer next to them on the ground that might tend to incriminate me. Well, they do. Uh, can, they, can they just say, I don't want to answer that question? Uh, I don't believe so. I think that's a, a very vague uh, response, and I think they'd have to specifically uh, invoke the Fifth Amendment. Uh, and as Justice Scalia, as you pointed out, uh, typically when they do that, they do that in the context of maybe a, a grand jury hearing or, uh, or a criminal trial. And so, um, again, the state's position in, in regard to this particular case is that, as it relates to the Fifth Amendment, is the name itself uh, is a neutral act. It simply doesn't implicate an individual in any criminal conduct. It doesn't say, in this particular case, uh, in regard to Mr. Heibel, that he struck the woman. It doesn't even imply that he uh, may have been driving the car. It doesn't go to any. How do you distinguish this so-called neutral fact from a billion other neutral facts which uh, have evidentiary significance in a criminal trial? It's a neutral fact that I'm wearing a pinstripe suit. But if the evidence was that the bank robber was wearing a pinstripe suit, uh, this this would be relevant evidence, and it might tip the scale in in proof. It's neutral. Well, that would certainly go to the uh, Wade and the Gilbert cases that talk about uh, Voice analysis of uh, line. But this is the. This is. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Hayes. Thank you, uh, Mr. Srinivasan. We'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. A person detained based on reasonable suspicion of crime may be required to provide his name to officers because that requirement contributes significantly to the ability of law enforcement officers to ensure their own safety and that of the public, while imposing only a minimal burden on an individual's protected interests and privacy. The question under the Fourth Amendment would be whether an Which otherwise... You, may I just interrupt there a minute. Now, how does it help the officer's safety? If he's, he's made the path down, he finds he is or is not armed. If he's armed, of course, he arrests He's not armed. And he, now, how does it help the officer's safety at this point? to find out whether he's just let him go away or he should call at the station and do something when he knows his name. Justice Stevens, it's true that a pat-down authority provides a measure of protection for an officer's, and it's, and it's an important one, but the authority to determine a person's name and thereby run a background check is a highly significant complementary measure. And do the, officers always pat down before they ask questions? I've had officers ask me questions often <laughs> without telling me to spread my legs, put my arms up against the wall, and they, they frisk me. I, no, and, and we certainly and, wouldn't want to encourage that kind of activity, would we? <laughs> no, and a pat-down authority is conditioned. Every case does encourage that kind of activity. If you have reasonable suspicion, that's the first thing you do is, is pat them down. Well, the authority to conduct a pat-down search, first of all, is conditioned on there being reason, a reasonable basis for believing that the person is armed and dangerous. And so, obtaining and a question person's is, name, once he finds he's not armed, why is his office of sa- why is his safety implicated by not deciding? to let him go instead of calling the station and detaining him further. Because a pat-down isn't foolproof. Uh, the, the, the officer might be assaulted in a physical assault rather than through the use of arms. Well, and, a pat-down, would and in not addition, a pat-down would not occur unless he had reason to believe the person was armed, which in most cases he will not have. And he, if he finds out that the guy he's confronting with is, you, you know, Machine Gun Harry, he's going to have a, a different approach to that individual. I don't see how there's any question that it, it can help the, the officer's safety unless you expect the officer always to pat down people, which they, they can't do unless they have reason to believe that the person is armed. That, that's, usually, usually they don't, I assume. That's right, Justice Scalia. The first response to Justice Stevens' question is that the pat-down authority is conditioned on there being a reasonable basis for believing that the person is armed it has and dangerous. To be a Reasonable suspicion, but there doesn't have to be reasonable suspicion that he's armed. Yeah, there That's has part of the inquiry. There has to be a reasonable basis for believing that the person is armed and dangerous before the authority to conduct a pat-down frisk kicks in. And what the what the authority to determine a person's name and thereby determine their criminal history does is to afford the officer with information that may lead him to believe that he's dealing with a dangerous well, is individual. Is it your position they should get the answer to the identity question before they pat him down? No, I don't think it's a, it's a question of sequence. Which comes first, in your view, in the normal police procedure? 
where there is reasonable suspicion under Terry? Well, it would de- first of all, it would depend on whether there's a reasonable basis for believing that the person is armed and dangerous, because if there's not that reasonable basis, the authority doesn't have the authority to conduct a pat-down at all. All right, but and on your cool. reasoning that he can ask for the, for the name for reasons of safety, and that's why it should be allowed without anything more, why doesn't exactly that same reason support an authority to, to pat down uh, even in the absence of any reason to believe that the person may be armed and dangerous. It would contribute to officer safety. No, it would, but the, the reason why the, for, uh, the Fourth Amendment requires a showing of a reasonable basis to believe that they're armed and dangerous before conducting a pat-down is because, as the Court described a pat-down in Terry, it represents a severe intrusion on the person's personal security. And that's not the case with a question, what is your name? That doesn't represent any sort of physical intrusion on the person whatsoever. So, so your argument really boils down to the, I mean, the, the, the crucial part of your argument is, is the, is the relatively, relative insignificance of the intrusion. That's but for that, we'd be in the same boat with name and pat-down. Well, that's critical to explaining why, in all cases, the officer should have an authority to compel the person to disclose his name. The insignificance of the intrusion. That's correct. Now, I thought, I thought under Terry, um, We've held that a police officer may detain someone briefly without probable cause on a reasonable suspicion the person has committed or is about to commit a crime, and during that process may ask all kinds of questions of the person. Although, as far as I can find out, this Court has said the person does not have to um, respond to the questions. What you're pointing to, Justice O'Connor, I believe, is the dictum that was discussed early in Berkmer versus Car- in Berkmer versus McCarty, mm-hmm. and that, first of all, is dictum. But not only is it dictum, it's ambiguous dictum, because the language that the court used was that the officer is entitled to ask a moderate number of questions, first to determine the person's identity, and second to obtain information with which to confirm or dispel the officer's suspicions. And then the court goes on to say that, of course, the detainee is not required to respond. It's unclear whether that statement um, concerning that the detainee is not required to respond relates to the initial basis for asking questions, well, we which is to determine the person's identity. just said that the officer may require the identification. That's what this case asks us to That's right, determine. Justice O'Connor, but the Court specifically left the, the question open at least on two occasions, both in, both in Brown versus Texas and in Colander versus Lawson. So I don't think the Court is in any way inhibited by its precedence. And the right to do a pat-down uh, is something you do after the officer has made the initial uh, decision to detain and ask some questions, presumably. That's right. That's right. It comes after the officer's made the determination to detain. That's correct. The issue under the Fifth Amendment, I think, is is. We go back. Would you go back to the Fourth? Because uh, I, I suppose that the, the officer can ask, you know, and he doesn't get an answer, so he pats him down. What's wrong with that? Well, if he has a reasonable I mean, it's very, very court. unlikely, I would think, unless you have some evidence to the contrary, that the officer uh, who's in a Terry stop situation, are there in, a lot of instances where they look, he said, what's your name? And then the person, and by the way, you have to answer or you're going to be in more trouble, so therefore the person gives him his real name, which happens to turn out to be one of the worst criminals in the country, and then he pats him down. I, I grant you that could happen. But contrast that with the situation where you take Berkmer literally, and now you say if he doesn't answer, sure, you can pat him down. What's wrong? I mean, I, I don't see it. I mean, what, I'm back to my point, which you heard me ask, and I, I'd, I'd really like an answer in terms of, I mean, Berkmer cites Davis, and Davis refers to the settled principle, settled, that you can't, you can ask at what you want, but they don't have to answer. Okay, so there are a lot of circumstances where it may be national ID cards or whatever, which are not Terry stop situations. But why should we retreat from that dictum? Now, I hear your answer about the, about the danger, and I think that's an important point. But I, I sort of cancel that by thinking not answering would also give the policeman a justification for the pat down. And, and now if that's right, what other reason is there for retreating from the rather strong dictum? No, but, but Justice Breyer, I don't think the pat-down eliminates the danger. The pat-down is important in addressing the possibility that the person might use arms that are on their person against the officer, but it does, it in no way eliminates the danger to the officer, and that's and, why. And you, you don't believe that the failure to give a name gives the officer reason to believe that the person <coughs> is armed, do you? 
I mean, simply because he refuses to give you a name, do you have justification to do a pat-down? No, we're not, we're not taking that position in the no, courts. I wouldn't think so. I, I know a lot of people that might not want to give well, a name Well, it would be pretty to odd to say that you can force a person to give his name in order to protect the policeman, but the far lesser restriction of just taking it into account as evidence you can't do. That would be an unusual position. I mean, taking it into account as a factor suggesting danger you can't do. But, of course, you can require him to answer under penalty of a crime. Well, I think that See, I mean, everybody's in a false position here because you're, you're being put in a slightly false position. But I don't know that it's a false all right, position. I'll, I'll, yeah, all right. I'll, ta- I'll take your answer, danger. Is there anything else? Well, it's not only danger to the officer's safety, but it also could provide crucial information for the officer to, to assess the individual's conduct. Because if the officer learns that the person's previously been convicted of a crime that fits the pattern that he observed in deciding to detain the person, then that could go a long ways towards the officer's determination that there's probable cause for an arrest. And, of course, that would be crucial in in terms of public safety because it could prevent commission of an imminent offense or the ongoing commission of a continuing offense. Why why do you stop at the name? Answers to any questions would have that effect. No, that's true. And and, and as — from the perspective of the Fourth Amendment, I'm not sure that there's a limitation related to answers to questions. I think the, the limitation would arise under the Fifth Amendment. And what the fifth so, so far as the so far as Terry and the Fourth Amendment are concerned, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure I understand you. Are you saying that there is an obligation to answer all questions, not just names? No, I, I, no. I, the court hasn't specifically spoken to that question, but we don't challenge well, I, the dictum. I, 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 is that is that the position that you're taking? No, we don't take the posi- we don't take that position because we don't ta- challenge the dictum in Berkmer and other okay, cases. Okay, then Insofar why do you stop? Why do you stop at the name? Is it again the the minimal intrusion? That that is a, a more minimal intrusion than other information. That's correct. Thank you, Mr. Shunavazan. Uh, Mr. Dolan, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Within the the Fourth Amendment balancing uh, construct, we believe that the government's argument that officer safety is served by requiring a person to utter their name is a false assumption. Truly, if the officer is stopping machine gun Harry and uh, he says, oh, I'm John Smith, and, and if you follow the government's position, then the officer at that time can relax his guard, thereby increasing the, liabil- the possibility of danger. So we think that as the court engages in the analysis of what is appropriate under the balance. You're, you're saying people can disobey the law to make it ineffective. That's not usually an argument we accept. Um, I'm saying that the, uh, within the, uh, with the, the government's argument is based upon the assumption that everyone will tell the truth during a Terry stop, and I don't believe that uh, corresponds with common sense, especially if Machine Gun Harry is there, he doesn't want to be identified, and it's in his interest to say, my name is Tom Smith. And if you follow the government's uh, conclusion, uh, rather its position, then the officer then relaxes his guard, doesn't take appropriate steps. We believe that officers must protect themselves, but do so in a way that is consistent with the Constitution. When the Court established the Terry rule, it created an exception to the previous rule was that seizures could only occur on probable cause, which was a greater evidentiary standard. And the Court was very careful to suggest that there was a limited uh, right, not a general exploratory search that now we will be involved with in, excuse me, because a name, the government suggests, will be the key to unlock data that is endless, given the modern age of technology, that the government can learn about that person. It is a general exploratory search which the government ultimately is asking this court to approve of. And then privacy is a, a, a nice principle to talk about as a part of history. Going forward, it will not be part of American citizens' uh, natural relationship, a right that they can count on, their uh, related freedoms that this Court also looks to in the balancing. Well, but if there's reasonable suspicion to believe the person's committing a crime, it doesn't shock me that they'd use the identification mechanisms to check it out. 
We're we're on the assumption that the person's been stopped on the basis of reasonable suspicion of committing a crime. So why not let them check in the computer records to see if this is the worst prior offender they've ever had? Well, with respect to the Terry stop itself, it is for investigation related to whether or not a crime may occur or is about to occur. And the officer has available to them tools to inquire. They can temporarily detain the person to see if there are witnesses around who could identify the person as having engaged in criminal conduct and the like. Um, But the, the notion that a person has to affirmatively provide a ticket to terminate that Terry encounter really tips the balance too much in favor of the state and risks a lot of benefits to our society that accrue through freely being able to move, to be let alone, to engage in protected activity without being subjected to the accosting that one is subjected to during a Terry stop. Suspicious behavior is not easily or usefully quantified, so this court has found and because what is suspicious to an officer. Thank you, Mr. Dolan. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.